No, it's the Creator Spaces show. I want to dig in a little bit on the kinds of content you create. If I understand correctly, you've got a newsletter, you've got a podcast, and you're putting out all sorts of content on Twitter. Some of your threads are just ridiculous. Thanks for the kind words. So you've got one in particular, your thread on psychology tips. I was wondering if you could share a couple of the biggest ones you think are most important for those of us who are creating this sort of a digital audience sphere. I got this great high school education for five years teaching psychology. So I've probably taught all of these subjects hundreds of times each. There's a couple that I think are super valuable for whatever you're making, whatever you're creating. One of which is this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where if we have very low expertise in something, we tend to think we're a lot better at it than we are. And then as we get better at something, we realize how little we actually know and we tend to doubt our ability. So this practically ends up looking like beginners are overconfident and veterans, for lack of a better word, tend to be a little bit gun shy, more hesitant than they should be. I think as creators, this is problematic, right? As soon as you learn one or two things, you're like, I'm ready to make a course. I'm going to start an online <laughs> community and it's slow your roll, right? Relax. I'm not going to shoot down any beginner for making something they want to make. But when you do have enough expertise, you have people who out there who have like PhDs and stuff. And they're like, well, I can't teach an online course on this because <laughs> it's, they just make up reasons that they can't possibly do it. And it's, Look, I know you know how much more there is still to learn, but trust me, people need this information that you have living in your brain. Looking through the one that I think is really valuable, especially as creators, there's two things I've witnessed happening quite a bit. There is both an inherent bias, it's called chronological bias, that like old things are worse than new things. Mm -hmm. And I think when you get caught up in technology and ideas and all these different things, it's very easy to think that old things are, for some reason, inferior I'm to something. I'm a reverse something. guy. Interesting. So most people, I can tell you from all of my data working in SEO and with Google and everything, everybody reads the newest stuff first. Totally you put 2021 in the title, you update your publish date to say 2021, instantly you'll get all the clicks. There is also a very strong, what I would call like a fetishization of the past. Yep. We saw, this is a completely objective observation, but the presidential candidate that most references a return to greatness, most recently we saw this with Make America Great Again, the one that references that is usually the candidate that wins objectively in the United yeah. States presidential election history. We have that very strong allure to really old stuff and really new stuff, but that kind of in between for a lot of people, that chronological bias gets skipped. We're constantly manipulating. So I think if you're a marketer, constantly updating your stuff and then making sure people know that it's updated is really valuable. If you're a creator, so I see this a lot on YouTube where people are just hacking. They just keep changing the titles to say 20, whatever year it is in the title. And this can't be the top five tactics when I see clearly this was published in 2015. There's plenty more in the thread that you could share, but I think those two are pretty big and really helpful for makers and creators. When it comes to that balance of consumption and creation, what is your balance? So I have times and places where I consume different types of media, whether that's reading or podcasts or YouTube or whatever. The one thing that's made a big difference for me in the last maybe month or two has been taking more notes on it. 
not being left with, oh, that was an interesting idea, on to the next, just consuming the next to consume the next and letting the consumption be the reward. I just started putting every interesting thought I had into Evernote. And then what I'm creating is just this body of notes where when I want to write about a topic, I can drop just a term in there and it pulls up all my notes that are related to that. And I love that. It's been really valuable. Again, just helping me connect dots across months and years and podcast episodes and all these different things. Where, as a creator, do you see the biggest need for either information or services to fill a gap in your ability to grow and build an audience and business around yourself? I think way too many people are trying to scale too fast. They are creating software and things like that that would allow me to do that but they're not realizing what a lot of people need. It's a very common thing in venture capital to be like, well, that's service revenue, right? Like service revenue is not really, it's almost discounted. Like it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> the problem is like what I need is service. The real gap is time and software doesn't solve the time thing. It makes something easier, but I still have to spend three hours setting it up. And then it opens up all this Pandora's box versus somebody who would just be like, hey man, thousand bucks, I'll set it all up for you. Cool. And then it'll be done. Yeah. All right. Done. I'll pay that today. But too many people are worried about creating this really cool software that can like make all these things possible, but they don't realize they're actually just making more work. I think that's the biggest gap right now. All right. Let's jump into the lightning round. Whatever you want to do, man. Let's do it. Well, first off, how do you build your audience now? By writing almost exclusively. I do a lot of other things, podcasting and video and all of this different distribution methods. But I think the crux of my audience comes from writing. And how did you start out building your audience up? By making a lot of things. I actually started because I'm in the SEO space. So wanting to talk about my work because of the nature of what I do, ranking in Google for anything SEO related is just a dumpster fire. It's hard to compete. You might have the best content in the world on it or a wonderful essay on something. It's never going to get surfaced because Neil Patel just bought a new website and folded it into his own and picked up a million backlinks. Like right. you just can't compete. So I knew where I could compete was YouTube. I know I index really well on audio and video, so I'm going to have the best podcasts and the best YouTube videos on these topics. It's only that I've come back around to writing. And so how do you go about monetizing now? Most of the ways that I make money... So I also have a day job because I believe in that and love it. You asked me, how do I monetize? This is something really interesting. I was listening to a podcast recently talking about the creator monetization and how creators are different than businesses because businesses are there to earn revenue. Creators care about so many more things rather than just revenue. If I monetize in this way, how will my audience think about me versus this way? Because of my education background, I've done sponsorships in the past. I'm still open to them. It just has to be the right partner. And then primarily the way that I make money is through selling courses access to my membership community and consulting. And does your creator revenue outpace your full-time job revenue? Yes. Okay. That's really interesting to me because do you spend more time or less time on your creator stuff? Less. I would awesome. say less. 
It depends. So I've had a couple different career pivots, we can call them. But so going from, I'll give you the most example, the most recent one, I was an SEO director at an agency. And it was personally and professionally the most difficult job I've ever had for a lot of different reasons. But agencies are just brutal across the board. They Uh. can be. So I've worked at two and they couldn't be more night and day. One of them was wonderful for a million reasons. And the other one was not wonderful for an equal and opposite million reasons. I just felt like that second agency kind of gaslit everybody that was there. This is agency life. It's just awful. And it's you guys are making it awful. Like it doesn't. I was on the leadership team and I'm like, doesn't have to be that way. Taking a step back and looking for a new role and joining Active Campaign as a growth marketer, I knew I didn't want to manage people because I wanted to be able to just work really hard and not have management or leadership be on my radar. I just wanted to execute and just make things and be an in-house creator, I guess we could call it. So that was a really big part of that. Is going to school for business a waste of time? Do you need a marketing degree to be a marketer? This is quite honestly the biggest argument I ever got in with my parents was on this very subject. So I am fascinated to hear what you have to say on it. I had students, specifically special scholarships and application processes for students that are a part of marginalized populations or underserved populations. And I couldn't get some of my students to apply to Yale, Harvard, MIT. They wouldn't even apply because there was so much societal pressure and everything had been built up in their head for those 18 years that by the time they were going to graduate high school and go to college, they're like, I could never go there. I would never fit in. There's nobody like me there. All of these things are there. And these institutions are absolutely predatory to marginalized students. They'll put out these, we have scholarships and it's Yeah, but you're not seeking them out. Like you can't just make something available and then be like, nobody came and got it. It's not accessible in that true sense. And I think that when people say you need a master's degree in marketing to get started, they hold back so many brilliant, we'll keep on the creators thing. Like they hold back so many brilliant creators. That's why I was hedging at the beginning. If I said, don't start until you're an expert, that's the wrong thing right? I didn't mean to express that because that's wrong. I don't want to hold that back. And let's look at the facts. Only 24%, less than a quarter of all of the unicorn tech company founders have an MBA. You clearly don't need an MBA to found a unicorn company. And only 38% of them had any business training at all. Like you don't need this kind of training to have a big company, a profitable company, a lifestyle company. You don't need it are for networking and for learning how to operate in a corporate environment. But mostly networking is my understanding. Like everyone I know who goes to get an MBA and is happy about it, they're getting that MBA and they're getting it because they want to transition careers. It's- yeah, they want somebody, They want the gatekeeper. They want somebody else's approval of them. And I think what I would argue is you don't need anybody else's approval. So you can, they say things like, you can't become a great marketer from TikTok. And I'm like, watch them. Somebody will. Yeah, somebody will got- get compl- all their marketing education from TikTok and they'll crush it. Look at me, like, what? where did I get trained? Blogs, YouTube. You can get a full education on YouTube. There's absolutely no reason to allow anybody to hold you back. I'm a huge believer in learning in public. Just share what you're learning. What are you? You don't have to. What am I learning right now? What big topics are you digging in on? 
writing mostly. What I found Twitter, it's so funny, writers for so long talked about how pithy and stupid tweets are. But if you look at the thread, it focuses you in two fundamental ways. First of all, this has to carry somebody through. I need a storyline. I need to use writing mechanics such as like open loops that are going to keep people reading through this whole thread. Additionally, every section has to stand on its own. Every tweet has to land uniquely. It has to be a part of the whole, but also be separate. And that is a very challenging way to write in a very important way to learn how to express yourself and clarify your thinking around topics. So the first tweet has to land in a way that it's, I'm going to read this whole thing. Tell people it's a thread, but you have to have a, a, you can call it like hook story offer is the best framework. I have to hook you in. I have to start a story that you, the journey we're about to go on together. And then I have to make you an offer, not an offer in terms of like a monetary offer, the way that you think about it in marketing, but what are you going to get by the end of this? And that's my first tweet, hook story offer. And then I'm going to carry you through. There's a lot of different techniques to doing this. I actually have a thread about threads that I launched before we started Ship 30 just because I wanted to clarify my thinking around it. That's the other thing I love about writing is that it forces you to clarify your thinking. The one thing I started doing was studying. I looked at people who did really good threads uh, like Julian Shapiro, and I looked at what tweets within the thread. The first tweet is always going to get the most retweets. But within a thread, what ones seem to land over and over and started piecing together what matters and what people like. And what people like a lot of is, is frameworks. So how can I like have a story and a narrative and be giving examples? And some tweets are just meant to pull you down to the next tweet to keep you reading, which is, again, just like a great writing technique. And then where are we going to hit them with the framework? It's a four-part or a three-part framework. And the next couple of tweets after, we're going to break those down into separate pieces. Maybe that you're using a timeline. Maybe you're writing out a list. Telling a story with if I were writing about SEO and I said, a brief history of SEO, 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020. And I just told like what I thought was most important in SEO in each of those decades. Without telling people the story, I'm showing them the story and I'm letting them participate and fill in the gaps. What is he actually saying? It's like showing somebody a pie chart without giving them the conclusion. They're coming to their own conclusions. They're interacting. And I think that it's really interesting and valuable. But learning to write on Twitter will make you a better long-form writer. It will make you care more about the micro. I think you're a much better writer in the ways that Twitter forces you to constrain your thinking. So I'm interested to know about your experiences with Twitter as somebody who's been able to grow a pretty decent size and very engaged following on there. What makes Twitter unique? What I find to be special about Twitter is the people that I choose to interact with enjoy two-way communication. It is very often does not tolerate distribution in the way that we would think it. Your distribution of your content on Twitter needs to be native, whether that's I make videos specifically for Twitter. When I write, it's specifically for Twitter. It might link out, hey, if you want to read this in an article or share it, or here's my newsletter, you can you know sign up, blah, blah, blah. But it is a two-way communication platform. And I'm not going to roast them over it. But everybody who uses it as a one-way communication platform ends up failing. So what I did was I started following a bunch of people who do have that, like what I call fortune cookie Twitter. That's what they do. They just tweet these like 
little things. But what I started doing was just replying simple tweet. Here's how you do this. Five bullet points of actually like how they'll say things like today's a great day to build something that pays you forever. Yes, it is. And you have left people confused and unhelped. So I like, let's serve these people. And I'm not better than anybody. This is a growth tactic of I can be more helpful. So I put those things in there. And what I like, again, is that it's a two way communication platform that when I reply to Jack, just replying to like, I'll pick up 20 or 30 followers, because those are people who are like, I want to follow you too, because you shared something that tactically helped me. And that's the brand I want to build. And that's what I like is that on a two-way platform, those types of comments resonate with people. I want to know, would you centralize your operations as a creator to a single Twitter stack? No, I never would. I love that this makes it easier. I love that this will get more people to make things. It's a good thing to get people started. But I'm a huge believer in owning your own platform at all times. I would never want all my stuff, especially with Twitter. I don't buy stock. I've always found a higher ROI out of reinvesting money into my own business versus into stocks. Same. But Twitter's the first stock that I'm like, I would love to be a part of that. Like This is a weird rocket ship feel to it. And I like that. And I like that buzz. And I like all of those sorts of things. And I feel like everybody who's spent a lot of time building an audience on the platform because it really is everything. It's what LinkedIn wishes that it was for people's careers. Like they could very easily add the uh, super follow and replace a good chunk of the safe for work OnlyFans accounts. And I think that's really interesting. So would I put it all on Twitter as somebody who already has it in other places? Absolutely not. Am I really excited that they're doing it? Very much. What's your so, goal as a creator? To serve more people. I think my audience and my community, which I separate as two different things, audiences, you help other people, community is they help each other. I feel like I have a capacity to serve a lot more people. And I feel like I'm way under leveraged in that right now. If you could send a tweet back to your start, what would it be? It would just be the reminder of just keep making. Like you'll find your way. Just keep going. I just said it. Tweet to my 25-year-old self, just keep going. The only thing that matters in this is whether or not you quit. Don't. Love it. And I do believe that because I do think that's genuinely the only correlation that I've found between anybody who's found any as they define success for themselves. That is the only thing that everybody has in common is that they just have not given up. 